shut up and listen. And now for feminism in Quebec ST. Feminism in Quebec has evolved differently from the rest of Canada and its history does not necessarily match the idea of the four waves conventionally used to describe Canadian feminist history. After Confederation, the provincial government of Quebec continued to be closely associated with the Catholic Church, resulting in the preservation of traditional gender roles. The conservatism of the then provincial government and the privileging of Catholic values contributed to Quebec being the last province in which women received the provincial franchise. By the 1960s, during the Quiet Revolution, many women in Quebec linked the patriarchy that shaped their lives with the colonial domination of English Canada over Quebec's affairs. Equality between genders would amount to little if both men and women were subordinated and misrepresented through English values, culture, and institutions. Though the Federation, excusez-moi, though the Fédération des Femmes du Québec was founded in 1966 to advance the rights of women in Quebec and the organization worked closely with the National Action Committee on the status of women in the 1970s and 1980s. Tensions between English, Canadian and Quebecois feminists were strong during the debates over the Meech Lake Accord and the Charlottetown Accord and at the time of the 1995 referendum. Marie-Claude Bellot, Marie-Claude Bellot on l'intersectionnalité and Feminisms in Quebec, Canada. Bellou applies a feminist mythology and research framework to the interwoven issues of national and cultural identity, which she terms nat cult, both within Quebec and between the province and the rest of Canada, ROC. These conceptions of self, be they feminist, Quebecois, or Canadian, in turn affect the identity politics of the region. She deploys strategic intersectionality 
in order to analyze how feminism is represented in Canada's two main legal systems. She cautions against eternalizing differences, essentialism, or erasing them, universalism. Quebec is a unique case study because of the problematic private-public divide, which is reinforced by the parallel civil common law split in the province's legal system. Furthermore, the Quebecois historically situated as both colonizers and as colonized people, further lending complexity to their identities. Below employs tactical thinking to negotiate among Quebecois and ROC feminisms, engaging with identity politics and processes of subordination and dissolution in how Quebec feminists are represented in the legal world. She argues that Quebec feminism should and does have a distinct fuss. This is manifest in the approach of intersectionality as embracing cultural distinctions, ensuring no fights for social justice are subordinate to each other, and the understanding of emancipatory confrontations as independent but still interrelated. Distinct feminism preserves this nat-cult individuality. The author also details the mythic confrontational portrayal of Anglo-Saxon feminism and that much of Quebecois feminist identity stands in contrast to this perceived antagonistic Anglo-Saxon feminism. Quebec men similarly struggle with their own conceptions, with their own conceptions of self, particularly amid historical confrontations with English-Canadian men. Conquest has led to hierarchy exemplified through the past relationship of the Quebec matriarch and her male consort, l'homme rose, or the pink man. For women, many embrace their Latin heritage through an allegiance to their French past in order to assert their distinctiveness in a continent with competing cultural identities. Younger Quebecois feminists wish to disassociate themselves from both Anglo-feminism and Latin femininity to construct their own intersectional identity and to remove themselves from the sexism inherent in some Latin cultures. 
In addition, as the author articulates, for First Nations women, this French past does not provide positive memories or cultural touchstones. Ultimately, Bellot urges women to see projection, dissociation, and distinction as strategies used by both Quebec and ROC feminists to create constructive dialogues and coalitions among women. Indigenous feminism and black women and feminism make up feminism in Canada. For more information on indigenous feminism, visit Native Women's Association of Canada. Indigenous feminism have also taken a different trajectory from the mainstream white Anglo-Canadian women's movement. Indigenous women have largely not participated in that movement, in part because indigenous women's organizations have focused on issues related to colonialism and cultural discrimination. Further, some indigenous women have explicitly rejected the label of feminist because it is perceived to suggest a strongly antenatal and anti-family stance that is offensive to indigenous women as they rebuild their nations. As well as this, it is important to understand that this resistance comes from a place of realizing that gender roles, the community and culture are deeply interconnected. Therefore, gender issues do not only affect indigenous women, but affect the community as a whole. Others have viewed the universal sisterhood associated with the second wave with hostility perceiving the idea that all women are the same as an erasure, as an erasure of difference and as an attempt at colonialization. By and large, indigenous women active in pursuing their rights, such as those belonging to the Native Women's Association of Canada, do not see themselves as part of a separate feminist movement, but rather one that will complement the aboriginal organizations which tend to be male-dominated. Indigenous women have worked together to address gender and cultural discrimination as they experience it. One of the most notable instances of this activism was around the issue who qualifies as a status Indian under the Indian Act. The status of Indian was conferred to people whose father had the Indian status. According to an amendment to the Act made in 1951, a native man always passed on his status 
to his wife and children, whether she was indigenous or not, while a native woman who married a non-native lost her own status and could not pass on her status to her children. These conditions for qualifying for status caused many women to be displaced from their communities. These amendments inspired activism on the part of the Tobik Women's Group as well as the founding of the Native Women's Association of Canada in 1974. In order to enable women to achieve equality not only as women, but as indigenous women. The struggle for women to receive equal status under the Indian Act was also clear in various challenges to the Act. First, by Marie to Acts Early, followed by the human rights challenges raised by Jeannette Lavelle, Yvonne Bidard, and Sandra Lovelace in the 1970s. In 1985, the Indian Act was amended to address unequal treatment of Native women with Bill C-31, which allowed the return of Native status to those who lost it. Having said that, there are still an abundance of discrimination aimed at indigenous women and activism continues to be done to this day. In the case of black Canadian women, the mainstream history of the first and second waves is problematic insofar as their struggles to enable women to leave their homes and partake in the labor force, ignored that certain women had always worked to support their families. Most clear in American black feminist Sojourne Truths, Ain't I a Woman speech. The experiences of black women in Canada have not been adequately addressed by conventional feminist histories. Like Aboriginal women, some black feminists have articulated their experiences in terms of a racially disadvantaged struggle for equal treatment and that their struggle is not only against patriarchy but systemic racism as well. Mary Ann Shad Carey was a prominent member of Canada's black community who advocated in Ontario for a woman's right to vote in the 1850s. 1850. Black women saw a need to fund their own organizations, including missionary work in the late 19th century through the Women's Home Missionary Society of the Baptist Church. 
Furthermore, black women founded organizations like the Colored Women's Club in Montréal, founded in 1902, to expand opportunities for people in the black community through mutual support. Though the double burden of work and household labor that would be an important element of feminism in its second wave had long been present for black women, they were also less likely to be paid fairly while it was middle-class white women's experiences during and after World War II coupled with the emergence of Betty Friedman's the feminine mystique that led middle-class white women to consider engaging in the workforce. By the time of World War II, at least 80% of black women in Canada worked in the domestic services sector and earned less than their white counterparts. Black women in Canada established a national women's organization in the post-war years with the founding of the Canadian Negro Women's Association in 1951. Though the organization started largely as a social organization, over several decades it became more activist in orientation and in 1980, after a national conference, it changed its name to the Congress of Black Women of Canada to reflect the changing structures and concerns of the organization. Once again, I'd like to thank wikipedia.org the free encyclopedia online for allowing me to read this to you. Darling, how did you enjoy the waves? Levag. Next episode, let's swim in a little deeper and with layers. Get Ready to enter the portal. Bedtime Stories Darling is a sensual ASMR experience to keep you in bed. You're listening to Boudoir Therapy Season 2, hosted by Darlene Wong. Shh.